it's an interesting situation that the topic of homosexuality has become such a live topic here on this campus because this chapel was planned probably nine or ten months ago for this date and of course we didn't know that at the time I simply wanted you to meet uh, two of my dearest friends who've had a journey with this issue, a very personal journey, and hear them reflect on their journey. I, I want to mention one thing at the outset, and that's that our guests this morning will not be so much dealing with the ethical issues of homosexuality this morning. They'll simply be sharing their own journey. This evening, however, if you wish to ask them any questions. Uh, they're going to field questions in, a, in an alternative chapel tonight in Hieronymus Lounge at 9 p.m. And uh, that will be totally open to discussion and, and uh, give and take and questions and answers. And also, if any of you would like to take advantage of talking to them either together as a couple or one-on-one -on -one, uh, for any range of reasons, Perhaps you have some, you know somebody in your family who's struggling with this. Perhaps you're struggling with it yourself. Uh, perhaps you just have theological questions, biblical questions, or psychological or emotional questions about the topic of homosexuality. You, you'd like to talk to them after you hear a bit about their journey. You can do that by, they, we, the counseling center has opened up uh, a room for them to meet with students. And uh, if you just call the counseling center, you can make an appointment between uh, 1 and 4 today or 1 and 4.30 today uh, to meet with uh, both of them or either of them. Now, it's my privilege to introduce our friends to you. They've been friends of mine since we were about 21 years old. We both joined the same mission organization. We, we, we both... And when I say both, I mean they as a couple and Linda and myself as a couple. We had very similar goals in life. We wanted to live for Jesus Christ. We wanted specifically to tell high school kids about Christ, which uh, Bob and Joanne did for probably about 20 years, and, and Linda and I did for about 13 years. We joined the mission of Young Life together. We were at uh, the opening staff conference together, our first new staff conference, uh, right after we'd both graduated from uh, college, and I think Bob may have already graduated uh, from Fuller Seminary at that point, I'm not sure. But, uh, and we've walked a journey with them for all these years since, some 25 years. Uh, and it's been a delight. And I can tell you that these two people have great integrity and uh, have had a tough journey. And that they have uh, walked that journey in a way that I believe has honored Jesus Christ tremendously. So first of all, let's have both of them stand and welcome both of them, Bob and Joanne Blackford. And then Bob is going to come and start the time. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, in one sense. Um, I, my, my daughters are both here. My oldest went to Westmont. We spent a number of chapels in here. So it's uh, familiar, and yet this morning seems uh, it, it, both exciting and harder at the same time. <clears throat> I want to thank Bart for taking the risk 
on inviting us to be with you this morning. It may not seem like a risk to him, uh, but I assure you that what we have to say uh, has, has become very controversial in these last few years, and I believe it takes a certain courage uh, to face these issues that have become so political and so social and religious and have psychological implications and are so deeply personal to so many people carry huge stigmas. I've uh, read the recent editions of The Horizon that deal with the, uh, and address the issue of homosexuality and listen to Dr. Gady's talk of last week. Uh, and I have to tell you that God's timing is really perfect and his desire to implant truth in our heart is relentless and evident here. Psalm 94 one of my favorite sections that's held me on in the last several years says this, Unless the Lord had given me help, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. When I said, My foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. I've found that most people, including myself, or a good number of people, grow up with that sense of, without that sense of self, imparted to them perhaps by their father or not by their father, as in my case. And they grow up without that, that sense of self and a great anxiety in me. I was really replaced, uh, my soul was replaced by the power of rejection in it. Psalm 40 says that best why the Lord, I think, wants to set us free from that power of rejection and anxiety in our life. It says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and put their trust in the Lord. I think the purpose of sharing one's journey is to speak about the redemption of Jesus Christ, simply to speak about what is God has done in our lives so that others can find that freedom that we found ourselves, And that's what we intend to do today. There's a number of areas in our lives and in mine uh, that, that we just sort of leave alone. We set to the side as it is. God seems unable or unwilling to change those little parts of our life. And so we just set them aside. In unbelief we say, well, I have faith for other people and uh, I have faith for other parts of my life, but just not that area. And I've lived with that sense of hopelessness and ambiguity in my life for the better part of my 48 years until just recently. And for reasons that I'm just now beginning to understand and acknowledge, I grew up with all the outward signs of self-esteem and success, <clears throat> and yet none of the inner belief that I could connect with other people, that I would somehow make it as a man in this world. So I played hide-and-seek, much like the kind that you played as a child. I played hide-and-seek with God and with other people. And I lived in constant fear of exposing my inner bankruptcy, fixated on a false, uh, a false provision for meeting my own needs. And I created an outer self that other people would like and accept and respect just created that. So, at nearly 30 years old, married with two children, two young girls, full-time ministry with high school kids, 
and with a lot of unanswered ambivalent questions in my own heart, I acted on my own. I believe that my natural yearning for my father, uh, a male connection of some kind, mixed with my biography of a lack of that connection, led me to sin and total disobedience in my attempt to resolve my inner conflict. And I began a homosexual relationship that eventually led to a number of them, of them over a period of about 10 years. In 1985, during the first sweep of blood supply in, in this country, I discovered that I was HIV positive. Since then, the disease has developed into AIDS, and I've more or less lived under the, and felt the heavy sentence of death until just recently. Before and even since that time, I lived in constant fear of rejection, and, and really could see no possible resolution for what I faced. Either I would expose myself and face real rejection and exile from my friends, the people I cared about the most, or hide it and eventually let it destroy everything in my life. That seemed my choice. So in secret, I lived a complete lack of authority in my life. In secret, I lived a complete lack of initiative with other people. And in secret, I lived uh, a lack of peace and even assurance of my own salvation. And I know that some of you feel the same. Because uh, of this feeling, I want to give you a picture, a brief picture of what it felt like. I felt as though I was, if I made it to heaven, if I did, and I had enough theology to know that I might, because of my accepting Jesus Christ as a, as a teenager, uh, I would make it to, to, to heaven, but I would look like this. It would, I would move, walk into the back of a, a very dark movie theater, and I would sit in the, in the back row. And this was heaven, and as I sat in the back row with other people like myself, kind of perverted sinners, the worst of the worst, and I would watch the, the banquet table, and I would watch Jesus with all of my friends uh, up on this lit, lit stage. That's how I felt about heaven. That's how I felt about my salvation. <clears throat> I lived mostly from that time on to put my life in order so that I could die. That's what a person with AIDS does. I doubted not only my salvation but also the fear that I would ever be able to stand whole and complete and known and loved at the same time. That seemed like an impossibility. And so I lived in kind of a hopelessness. I felt a lot like the prodigal son, only worse. You see, he only spent his father's inheritance, his father's money. I felt as though I had squandered all that God had given me, my gifts of leadership, my ministry, and my personality, uh, and evidently my life as well. I'd been unfaithful, deceitful, had, had learned to become a creative liar, and had forfeited everything. And it took the severe, the severe mercy of God to bring me back. It took HIV and AIDS to enable me to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and come out the other side. I admit I moved more toward resignation of what was than contending for the resurrection. I settled for what is rather than what is to come and concentrated on my loss rather than what could be restored through Jesus Christ. I was the prodigal son 
as I know many of you have felt in your own disobedience, in your own way, in your own heart, much like the prodigal son. I'm not the only one who feels that way or who's felt that way. The difference was that I returned back to the father with leprosy, modern-day leprosy. So I disqualified myself. How could Jesus Christ ever make it right? Now, my confession came slowly and in stages and was originally forced upon me like a severe mercy, as I've said. And little by little, I had to unfold my sin and the darkness that I'd walked into. And as I found greater safety in a few people around me, I became more and more uncovered, layer by layer. Still holding on to the shame and the fear of that final rejection, though. I had to reveal to other people my ambiguous heart and my reluctance to believe that God would change it. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? That ambigu ambiguity inside that, that I, I'm not sure I wanted to change and I'm not sure that God could change me. I was reminded over and over again of Paul's words to the Ephesians when he said this, have nothing to do with the fruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light for everything that becomes visible is light. So we must all recognize our total brokenness before God as I had to do. We all have to in order to receive the grace and the mercy of forgiveness that he offers. I couldn't receive it very easily. But it's a frightening thing to give up those secrets and expose them. We fear rejection and the accompanying shame. And for many, it's just too high a price to pay. It almost was for me. But even with leprosy, I found the Father's arms enfolding me when I came home. And that movie theater changed to a brightly lit room where there was no back row and we were all sharing in the banquet table with Jesus. My whole vision changed. But the question of my healing is not really the issue here. I don't believe it is. My inner debate at its peak was the most intense and prolonged of my life. What had become natural to me in my sin the inner desire to take the easy road and follow my own lust. The pull of a culture and the society that would encourage me to be myself, you see, and to fulfill my own need in my own life uh, as I wanted to, came into direct conflict with a deeper and more important pull. That of truth in God's word of commitment to a woman I had married years before and to a family that would have to live out the consequences of my actions for the rest of their lives and ultimately a pull to a larger call in my life than my own desire. You see, my decision whether to go into the gay lifestyle or to stay married and to try to resurrect my old life into one that would become foreign and new to me as my life is now was not just about me. It was not just about my seeking my own desires. However, however they may have root causes that I could identify uh, in my past, it was really about truth. It was about God's loving design 
and desire for me. It was about the people God would bring into my path that would be given new hope in their own lives because what had God had done in mine. And he's done just that. It was not until I could make that decision for what was right. Do you understand the difference? For what was right and not necessarily what I felt that God would then have access to my heart and my will and my pain and my confusion and my destiny and then be able to change it forever. So now uh, I'm more concerned with what I'm emerging into than what I came out of. And I'm overwhelmed at what God has done, his grace and his mercy to me, to us. And the power of his ability to overturn the verdict of death, of Satan's design to destroy everything in my life. And he overturned that verdict. So now, I live with an amazing hope. I don't know where it came from exactly. I know it came from him. I don't know how it came directly through other people, through people who loved me, who kept believing in me, who kept putting up with my lies and coming back and coming back and imparting life to me. And so I have hope for healing and for change and for wholeness for me and for you. God has given me, strangely enough, a ministry of sorts, primarily those struggling with gender identity and with various other addictions. I speak wherever I can publicly about what I once assumed I would take to the grave with me. What a switch. What a change. My resurrection is where failure turned to triumph and where despair turned to hope. I live on borrowed time and I've really become quite content with that concept. A.W. Tozer said that it's doubtful whether God can use a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. And my family and I are beginning to know that truth. As I turn over the microphone and the rest of our time to my wife, Joanne, there's just one more thing I want to say. I want to pray over you in a sense. It comes from Paul's prayer to the Romans in chapter 15 says this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. counted a great privilege to be here today. Bob and I have had many years of ties to Westmont, about 20 or more. I actually can think of several other topics I would rather be speaking on today, but the Lord has had something else in mind. In many ways, I wish you didn't have to hear this journey of ours, because there has been many hard and dark places. What I pray you will remember is that even in our broken places, God's sovereign hand of grace, mercy, and love is what has held our lives together. I think it's important to give some history to help you know me. 
like many of you, I was raised in and thank God for a Christian home. My parents were both very active in Christian ministries. I knew what Christian service looked like, and I knew my parents were respected because of their sincere love for Jesus. I also knew and received love from my immediate family and hordes of relatives. Both of my parents came from large families, and consequently, there was always some kind of creative dysfunction going on. My parents were often the stronghold in these situations because Jesus remained their stabilizer. I saw what people who knew Jesus did in troubled times. By junior high and early high school, I had done my share of soft rebellion, I guess. It was through the ministry of Young Life that I came to an understanding of the freedom in Christ. I could really have fun in life. I could dance. I could see a good movie without guilt. The reality of his love for me was sheer joy. And life could be free of do's and don'ts. I met Bob our sophomore year in high school. He also came to an understanding of Christ's message through Young Life. We dated for six years, on and off, and were engaged in our senior year of college. That doesn't happen around here, does it? In July of 1971, we were married, and life looked good. We were attending Fuller Seminary and meeting great Christian friends, many still our best friends. And by 1976, we had two daughters. Melissa, who is now married to Ben Ewart. They both graduated here in 1995. And Carolyn, who has attended that other school up in Spokane, Washington. Um, and they're both here today. We moved to Santa Barbara the end of 1977 to reestablish Young Life here. And by the early 80s, I began to feel some tension in our marriage. On one side of the balance, I was living with a man who loved the Lord and led searching high schoolers to the arms of Jesus. And on the other side of the balance, I was living with an easily frustrated, anxious, and blameful man. I tried to fix it and soon realized that was not my job. In November of 1985, Bob told me that he needed to talk to me. That Thursday night, Bob told me that he had had a homosexual relationship and was also, also HIV positive. The relationship that he had 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 ended in 83, and he did not desire this in his life. I was naively hopeful in the beginning, and then reality began to hit that first year, my heart broke over and over. We did gather several friends around us immediately, and they agreed to pray for us, help us make decisions, whatever. If I had not been able to bring my brokenness and confusion to two very dear friends who became Jesus with skin on for me, I would have lost my mind. 
They were listeners without judgment and listeners with understanding. I am a better friend because of these two dear women, Karen and Judy. Even so, the journey was a lonely one. I didn't know what this picture should look like. Only I could make decisions concerning so many difficult issues. I did not know one other person whose husband had fallen into homosexuality, was HIV positive, and still desired to follow the Lord. And if there was such a person, I didn't want to meet them. Not yet. My life had taken a 180-degree turn, and my dreams were shattering. Young life was not a safe place anymore. I was overcome with shame and fear, and yet respected my husband at the same time. I constantly weighed the future. I grieved my way through everything. So many losses. I had had enough psychology to understand my husband's struggles. I was not condemning. But nevertheless, our wedding vows had been broken. There had been years of deception, and the trust factor was difficult. Our sexual intimacy could never be the same. My husband could die from AIDS. What about my health? What about our daughters? We waited until our girls were 17 and 20 before we told them. And in the meantime, we did our best to give them great family memories and a home filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Bob and I hung on, and the Lord faithfully kept him healthy. However, Bob did struggle with more confusion that led to more deception, and this time, my acceptance came harder. I never thought I would be put in such a situation. Could I forgive as the Lord commands us in Matthew 6? If you forgive other people their failures, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't, neither will he forgive you your failures. What kind of an option is this? I felt used and of no regard. The walls began to build between us. I did not feel in love. I needed to withdraw to survive and search out where my faith really lie. Could I learn to love again? Choices. Should I divorce? It entered my mind for the first time. I had biblical permission. But the Holy Spirit grabbed the depths of my soul and faith. Divorce would not be the answer here. The bottom line of this story is this. Bob Blackford has been and always will be a man after God's heart. And I would rather put my efforts into healing a marriage and the persons involved than destroying a marriage and allowing bitterness a foothold. There's a little book by Louis B. Smeads. How can it be all right when everything is all wrong? He actually spoke here in 95 at graduation. He says this about forgiveness. This is what God does when he forgives. He breaks down 
the walls we build and gets into the backyard of our souls to make a new relationship. We too need to learn this. You start where you are, not where you wish you were, not where you would be if you could rearrange life, but wherever you are now with any person who has hurt you, and you make a new beginning. You hold out your hand and say, I want to be your friend again. I want to be your father again, your daughter again, your lover again. Let's start over. This is forgiving. You certainly do not have to squeeze every ounce of guilt from the soul of the person who did you wrong. You just begin where you are in your shared pain. And so you make your shared pain the starting line of a new relationship. There are two reasons to forgive. The first reason is that the biggest loser in the getting even game is the person who cannot manage the power to forgive. You never know for sure how much you hurt people by not forgiving them, but it can hardly be as much as you hurt yourself. When you make a hard decision against forgiving, you lock yourself in a straitjacket of your own resentment. You get boxed into a house haunted only with horrid memories. Unrelieved resentment is like a videotape inside your soul, playing its tormenting reruns of the rotten things somebody did to you, playing it over and over, wrenching your soul tighter every time it plays. You get hooked into it. You become a hardcore addict, and you cannot leave it alone. Your resentment has you shackled to the everlasting pain of a raging memory. Your hope is only to find the freedom of forgiveness. The second reason for forgiving is that when you forgive someone who hurts you, you are dancing to the rhythm of the divine heartbeat. When you forgive, you are in tune with the music of the universe. You are riding the crest of love, the energy of the cosmos. God invented forgiveness as the only way to keep his romance with the fallen human family alive. So every time an ordinary person discovers the power to begin again in a relationship with someone who caused her needless pain, she walks in stride with the living God. And freedom is established, and you can let go and move on. Tearing down walls is tough, and healing heart wounds is even tougher. My character is being challenged with the only scenario that would bring me to the feet of Jesus and face to face with myself. I have to choose with faith believing that Jesus does do what I had seen and read all my life. He is carrying my grief and holding my sorrow. He has forgiven me and released me from the shame held by the vision of a proper reputation, whatever that is. He has given Bob and I new life. Restoration is a reality. And love has blossomed with a richer meaning than ever before. Thank, thank you, Jesus. The shame and fear of damaged reputation still festers. But the Lord, um, but thank the Lord, recovery time is quicker each round. Jesus is in the business of healing and loving. I cannot be healed until I have been wounded. 
and how can I really learn to love until I never thought I would love again? Jesus heals. His faithfulness is rich with loving kindness. Psalms 139 says, He has searched me and knows my heart. He has tested me and knows my anxious thoughts and sees if there be any offensive way in me. He leads me in the way everlasting. I would like to read one more thought. It's called The Beautiful Box. Most people get married believing a myth that marriage is a beautiful box full of all the things they have longed for. Companionship, sexual fulfillment, intimacy, friendship. The truth is that marriage at the start is an empty box. You must put something in before you can take anything out. There is no love in marriage. Love is in people, and people put it into marriage. There is no romance in marriage. People have to infuse it into their marriages. A couple must learn the art and form the habit of giving, loving, serving, praising, keeping that box full. If you take out more than you put in, the box will be empty. Thank you. Father, it's been a, a holy privilege to listen to this journey, parts of it which I've really heard for the first time. And we give you praise that Bob and Joanne had the courage, number one, to face into their own struggles and to allow you to give them the discipline that it takes to forgive the discipline that it takes to confess, the discipline that it takes to receive your fresh love. And we thank you that they've had the courage to speak publicly now. We thank you that you gave them the wisdom to wait when the season wasn't right for that. And we thank you for their daughters, Carolyn and Melissa, and for how they have responded in these years and for the rest of their family and friends. Father, I pray for this group here this morning who are so dear to me. And I know that there are folks in this audience who are struggling with their own gender identity. I pray you'll be with them, that you'll give them the same kind of courage and tenacity to wrestle with it, to, to get the help necessary. I know there are friends here in the audience who are deeply struggling over others' struggles with this issue of gender identity. I pray you'll give them wisdom and love and acceptance and truth. 
And Father, most of all, I pray that we would learn to be a forgiving people. That we would uproot our own desire for resentment and for being right. And that we would walk in the ways of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.